0: So our first scripture reading is from 1 Samuel 25, 1 Samuel 25, it's page 248 in that blue Bible, 1 Samuel 25, let me try to catch us up to speed in 1 Samuel 25, this is a story about a fool, that's what his name meant, Nabal, the fool, that's what his name meant. And the ball has, has a big shepherd. He has lots of sheep. He has tons of flocks, and he sent them out during feeding season. Sent them out with shepherds out in the boonies, way off, away from his homestead. And so David is still on the run from Saul, from King Saul, and he's been out there. He actually, he and his small little band have been out there, actually providing security for those flocks of sheep from all kinds of predators both the two-legged predators and the four-legged predators if you understand what i mean they've been out there for nights and nights and days providing security and now comes sheep shearing time and sheep shearing is a great celebration because you have to spend like 24 48 hours shearing all these sheep and so you got to eat it becomes a festival so nabal the fool has this big sheep shearing festival David sends some of his men to Nabal and says, Hey, can we have some of that food? We did provide you security. And Nabal, in great hospitality and graciousness in his heart, said, No way! That was Nabal. In fact, he goes on to say, I don't even recognize that God is going to make you king. I refuse to recognize it. You're just a renegade. I refuse you, and I refuse to help you. Then comes down at verse 23. Abigail comes home. She hears about what happened, his wife hears about what happened, and she doesn't obey Nabal's intentions, but she acts in behalf of Nabal on Nabal's, on, uh, for his favor. Acts, she acts in a way that is to preserve him, and lo and behold, she will act in a way that will preserve David as well. So starting at verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey, and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She brought a ton of food with her, and then she fell at his feet and she said, and listen to these words, this should make you think maybe, maybe, of Jesus, who knew no sin and became sin for so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. She says, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak to your ears and hear the words of your servant Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal, fool is his name, and folly is his game. I'm sorry, folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. And so she has brought him food, and she has petitioned on behalf of Nabal, and she petitions on behalf of David. She says, if you strike him down, you will be guilty of murder. And so what happens? Down in verse 32, David said to Abigail, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion. She was a very wise woman. And blessed be you who have kept me, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. So David praises her because she did the right thing—not necessarily obeying her husband, but actually doing what was on his for his best benefit and also for David's benefit. And so, the very end of verse thirty-five, David says, "Go in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition." And so, Abigail becomes a model of a godly woman in a difficult situation. And so, just keep that in the back of your head. And now we turn to Colossians chapter three. As we're continuing our series in Colossians, getting on with the gospel. Colossians three, picking up at verse eighteen through chapter four, verse one. It's page nine eighty four in that blue Bible. So everything that David, uh, Paul writes here in chapter three, eighteen through four one, is flowing out of everything else he has said. So try to keep that in mind. And so David, uh, Paul says this. What I read to you from and summarized in 1 Samuel 25, and what I read to you from Colossians 3, it is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, there is so much clatter and racket and noise in our world that makes hearing you in this passage difficult. Oh, speak clearly to us, Lord. Speak clearly to us, one and all. Amen. You may be seated. So we're just, like I said, we're just picking up what we left off in this series, and I'm sure everybody envies me this moment. <laughs> it could be like me stepping off the curb in front of a Mack truck coming 90 miles an hour, but it be a, I just could end be, up being a greasy bug stain on the windshield somewhere. So I'm just going to jump in because we've got lots of things to cover. We've got especially some preliminary things that will help, I think. So as you read this passage, the very first thing you need to do, you must do, is you must set aside the abusive misuses of this passage. You've got to set them aside, and they will, they will, they will, they will clutter up your mind so that you cannot hear what's here. And you know the abusive misuse noise is when that, the voice in your head says, as I'm talking about this passage, says, yeah, but... Oh yeah, but what about? That's the noise that comes from the abusive misuses. You're going to have to set those aside. I hope when we get done, you will be able to say, Oh yeah, those are truly abusive misuses. And you'll see it clearly. So you've got to set aside, first off, the noise of the abusive misuse. Secondly, you absolutely must retain the flight path of this letter. This is not a standalone passage. It is part of a letter that has a context. And so, chapter one, the gospel gift Jesus freely offered to us in the gospel brings gospel liberty. Chapter two, one through chapter three, verse four. And that gospel gift that brings gospel liberty uh, causes some gospel leaving. Chapter 3, 5 through 11. You put off, you put on. Which then launches, chapter 3, 12, really to the end of the letter, which then launches gospel living. And part of this gospel living works out in our homes. Chapter 3, 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. Thirdly, Paul ended the last paragraph, verse 17, with an injunction. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do everything in submission to Jesus. Do everything under the authority of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then comes chapter 3, 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. Paul was very wise where he put this. Because it is one of the first places you get the opportunity You get the opportunity morning, noon, and night, day in, day out, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year to practice doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus and submission to Jesus under the authority of Jesus giving thanks. It's one of the very first places you get to practice it all the time. So it's very fitting he brings it up here. Additionally, what the Apostle writes in chapter 3, 18 through 4, 1 is unusual. I don't care what anybody else says. I don't care what you've heard on the radio or read in a book or whatever. Paul's household code that he's putting out here is, was unusual in his day. Now, there were household codes out there. Don't get me wrong. But the household codes that held sway in Paul's day, like Aristotle... Talked primarily to the men, as husbands, as fathers and as masters, and only talked about the women, the children and the servants. And did you notice already, as we read through this passage, did you already notice something unusual about it? What does Paul? who does Paul talk to? Yes, the men, but he also talks to whom? the wives, the children. and the the servants, right? He talks to those in the covenant community as if they all have equal value. Already, this household code is unusual, and you've got to remember that. Lastly, notice that each relationship in the household code that he puts here are in couplets. Wives, husbands. Children, fathers. Servants, masters are in couplets, and you will notice quickly again, as unusual as could be, he puts the men second. So in every one of these, he says, wives do this, husbands reciprocate. Children do this, uh, fathers reciprocate. Servants do this, and masters reciprocate. That response, you quickly cannot miss how he has turned things upside down a bit. Because it was written especially in a wor- world of domination. It was written in a world of rule. In fact, that's the word Aristotle uses all the time in his household code. You need to rule your house. You need to rule your wife. You need to rule your children. You need to rule your slaves, Rule, rule, rule. That was the world that Paul wrote this. And notice that the gospel breaks in and it reorders households. And it reunites households because these are all the areas where there could be huge tension and conflict and separation. He reunites households and he establishes the centrality of Christ in the household. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus like this. So, my friends, we're going to approach this passage a little odd just to give you a sense of oddity. So you feel like it's odd the way I'm presenting it. So you will remember this is an odd passage in its day. And it was actually would be odd in our day. I'm going to approach it from the bottom up. I'm going to begin with masters and then servants. We're going to move our way up to chapter 3, verse 18. So have your Bibles open so you can follow along. First off, masters and servants. It's chapter three twenty two to chapter 4, 1. Now, my friends, if you know anything about American history, you know that passages like this one were often misused and acted were treated like baseball bats to beat slaves into subservience and to give masters brutal dominance. That was one of the abusive misuses of this passage, and it's noisy in the background. But before I get into it very far, I want you to remember It was Christianity that actually, of every population and every philosophy and every ideology on the face of the earth, it was only Christianity that actually moved societies and nations away from slavery. As Esau Macaulay puts it in his book, An African-American Anglican Clergyman, as Esau Macaulay puts it in his book, Reading While Black, a very important book, you ought to read it. He says, quote, what is even more interesting is that no society that preceded the 18th century abolitions contended that slavery was fundamentally immoral. The widespread move to abolish slavery is a Christian innovation. It is a Christian innovation. And when we finally abolished slavery in the U.S., we actually mandated all the countries that we traded with that they also had to get rid of slavery. Christianity did it, it's a Christian innovation, and pushed it onto the rest of the world that did not want to emancipate any slaves. More I could say, more I actually had in here but took out this morning because it would take us too long. But that should give you a sentiment or a sense of this passage. Because some of the seeds of that Christian innovation are actually found here. Paul reminds masters, chapter 4, verse 1, Paul reminds masters that they have an obligation and gospel-shaped motivation to act differently from all the rest of the guys over at the country club and down at the local town hall. Because you see, in that day, as in most of world history, even to the present, slaves have no rights and none of the servants have rights. In fact, you as a slave or a master, a slave owner or a master, have every right to beat your slaves into submission. You have every right to torture your slaves if they run away and they get restored to you. You have every right even to put them to death. And notice Paul's statement in chapter 4, verse 1 is already utterly, totally different. From what the law said, from what the judiciary said, from what the executive office said, from what the local police department said, from what the local social clubs said, it's totally different. Totally, completely different. Masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly knowing that you also have a master in heaven. When Paul said those words, you also have a master in heaven. He stripped many of the old load-bearing screws that had been holding this national institution of slavery firmly in place. You also, because you, equal with your servants, must also likewise give an account of your doings to Jesus. That also moves masters out of the realm of above the law. Are you listening to that? That also moved masters out of the realm from they're above the law. No, they were under the law, if you will. They will also give an account to Jesus what they have done. And never forget the day of judgment is part of the gospel. We forget that sometimes. Every gospel sermon in the book of Acts, when, when Peter or Paul preaches, it always ends with, oh, and by the way, the one whom the Father raised from the dead on the third day and ascended into heaven and sits at the Father's right hand, he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. You need to trust him. Right? The day of judgment is part of the gospel. And so Paul rightly brings that in and says here that the gospel has everything to do with the way masters do what they do and so forth. The seeds of the Christian innovation are right here. You must treat your servants, male and female, both. Not as property, but persons who deserve justice and fairness, not dominance and abuse. That's why chapter 3 ends where it ends. you notice chapter 3? The last verse? The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality. That may have something to do with how the servants act, but it definitely has everything to do with what the masters do. And so then the servants are to do their part, starting in chapter 3, 22. Bond servants obey in everything, those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service or as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now notice that Paul moves motivations, the servants' motivations away from what would have been normal. From the motivations of self-preservation and self-service. He moves our motivations to become gospel-grounded and gospel-guided intentions with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Which has everything to do with what he said in verse 17. Even servants must do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. In submission to Jesus, And under the authority of Jesus, giving thanks. This is what lies behind the rest of his instructions to the servants. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And then he ends that with, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. As I've already told you, that last verse goes together very well with what he will go on to say about masters. You also are also the master of heaven. It's a good news, bad news statement. The Lord Christ, good news will come and right the wrongs done to the vulnerable by, by the vicious. And so what is bad news for the wrongdoers if they persist in wrongdoing? It's still good news for the ones who are wrong. So chapter 3, verse 22 to chapter 4, verse 1 shifts the focus away from rule and domination on the one hand and shifts the the motivation away from what would have been common with the servants away from deception and self-service to now both of them doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus in submission to and under the authority of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks. Now my friends, I know that we do not have a slave master culture in America, at least not legally, though it's, it is big in large sections of the world and other places. And we can give thanks for that. It was a hard road to get to that point. There was a lot of infighting in the church over it. But it's here. So you can give thanks that there's not a master slave culture here. But I want you to think that, and I am just going to give it to you, many of the principles that are in chapter 3, 22 through chapter 4, verse 1, hold water when it comes to employee and employer. Maybe not in every iota, but it does hold water. And so I'm going to leave it with you to look at on your own, because we have so much to cover, but it does speak to us as employees and employers. And so I'm going to leave that with you. So that was master and slaves. The same gospel pattern shapes in the relation of fathers and children. And that's chapter 3, 20 and 21. Paul writes to the fathers specifically. I am sorry that the NIV chooses to translate that as parents, if I remember correctly. And that just fits in with the NIV translator's uh, desire to be as gender neutral as possible from clear back in 1984. It is specifically in the Greek to fathers. Paul is writing verse 21 to fathers. He will use the word for parents when you get to verse 20. Okay, so 21, it is specifically to fathers. Why? Because all the studies tell us this. We we keep hearing this, and we know this is the case, is that the father will often set the direction of the household for better or for worse. And the father sets the tone of discipline for the children, or better, or for worse. So Paul writes to them specifically, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, you know the New Testament is written in Greek, and so that word, the Greek word that lies behind provoke, that Greek word, when it is used in a negative way like here, Care is the notion, the idea of do not agitate, do not embitter. And in an era and in an environment that this was written, of physical abuse and violence and hard-fisted rule by fathers, the meaning would be very clear. The meaning is very clear when any father chooses to rule with a hard fist and demeaning disposition. But the provoke here, do not embitter, do not provoke, is not a prohibition, for example, against physical discipline like spanking or using a switch. There's too much Bible that tells you otherwise. But it is a prohibition against crossing the line. Like Martin Luther's dad did when Martin Luther was a young teenager, would displease his father and disobey his father maybe. At times, his dad would march him into the barn and strap him up and wail on him with planks of wood. Crossing the line. Do not provoke your children as they become discouraged. But the directive here leads us even further. Embittering and provoking your children can come through less physical things like through the verbal batterings and emotional demeaning and stripping of your child of their dignity. Embittering can also come by way of desertion, whether literal desertion or emotional desertion, where a father who is no longer involved with his children one way or the other, no longer involved to lead and to guide them in growing up, do not embitter, do not provoke your children unless they become discouraged. But let me go a bit further. Fathers, when your wives, when your wife is directing and disciplining your children, someone said this to me years ago and it was so helpful. Let the children see your shadow behind your wife when she is disciplining them. What does that mean? That means they should recognize that when mama is disciplining them, daddy is disciplining them too. What that also means is then you cannot break into the moment of discipline or something and start to throw your wife under the bus, snidely commenting, as I've heard done before, snidely commenting how, oh, you're just too stinking emotional. You should calm down. They didn't do anything wrong. You're just a knucklehead or something like that. Throwing your wife under the bus. Strutting around saying, well, I can discipline the kids better than you. You don't know how to discipline. The kids, when, they, when mama disciplines them, they should understand daddy is right there with them. So they will know then that if they turn on mama to sass her, and they, they will... When they turn on mama to sass they need to recognize they're not just sassy mama, they're sassy daddy too. They're sassy daddy too. So long ago, so Caleb and Derek were off the hook because this has nothing to do with them because they were little guys at the time, but they're sisters who aren't here to defend themselves. <laughs> yes! So we homeschooled and I was at my first church which was a hundred yards down the road and, and I would be working away and then I'd come home in the evening. Well, Anna had been homeschooling and taking care of the kids and she would discipline the girls and she would do all the things she was supposed to do. She was a good, she was a good mom. She's still a good mom. And I would come home and then we'd eat supper and then Anna would say, or I would say, honey, you want to go for a walk? And so we would go for a walk. And as, and as we were going out the door, Anna would almost inevitably say to the girls, look, make sure you wash the dishes, keep an eye on the boys, and we'll be back in a few minutes. We'd walk out, we found this out later, the girls told us this. We'd walk out, go down the road, and the girls would immediately run to the front living room window, pop open the curtains just a little bit to watch Mama's body language. Because when Mama was talking to Daddy, if Mom started doing this... They knew, oh no, we're toast when daddy comes home. <laughs> but they knew we were a team. Right? They could not get one over on mama. right? That dad was going to come in and rescue them and say, oh no, man, you shouldn't have ever done that. No, they knew mom and dad were a team. And that's extremely important. And if you don't do that, fathers, if you come in there and demean their mom, Don't be surprised. Your kids walk out demeaning your wife and every other woman and being embittered and discouraged. Fathers, do not provoke your children they become discouraged. So notice the goal is very, very clear. To not strip away the courage out of their hearts. That's what discourage means. To strip away courage from the heart. And so if you want to put this in a positive way, the goal is... The aim is to lift up their hearts, to fill their hearts with courage. And this comes by living with them. This comes by being engaged with them. This comes by being present emotionally, physically, with courage-giving leadership that supports their mother. And in this way, fathers, you are reflecting our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus gets in it with us to grow us and to draw us in a certain direction. And you fathers doing that are exhibiting Jesus, the gospel exhibiting Jesus in your family. Which then helps to support what Paul directs the children to do. So kids, I want all the kids to listen. Children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. That's pretty cool. Quit coloring, by the way. I was a kid in church once. I know what goes on. So kids, Jesus wants you. Jesus wants you to grow in learning how to obey your parents without throwing a fit, without arguing, without lying, without cheating. But you do what they say. Yes, even when they say, kids, it's time to go to bed now. Go to bed. Yes, even when they say to you, again, clean your room. Yes, go clean your room. Yes, even when they tell you to take out the trash and go wash the dishes. Yes. Yes. Go take out the trash and wash the dishes. When they tell you, do your homework, get it done tonight. Go do it. And as you're doing it, know you are pleasing not just your parents. Paul says you are pleasing the Lord. Why does that please the Lord? Children who are obedient to their parents. Why would that please the Lord? Oh, because it looks just like Jesus. Do you hear the gospel? The son who always did his father's will. You're fitting into with Jesus. And that's the part of the gospel is the fact that we are being transformed more and more into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's one way as kids you exhibit the gospel yourself and you show that you are Christian kids, that you really believe Jesus. And that you're delighted that he, you're, you're becoming more and more like him. And so Jesus is happy when you obey your parents. And so then fathers and children, this is more how you as fathers and children can do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus in submission to Jesus and under the authority of Jesus, giving thanks. Finally then, husbands and wives. The moment you've all been (laughs) weak. Now I want you to notice in all three of these directives, a couple of things before I get into this too deeply. In all three of these directives, Paul is never saying that the men do not lead. That's actually part of creation. Genesis 2 is explicitly laid out and it is implicitly referred to in Genesis 3 because Adam fails. You see failed leadership. Eve ate the fruit and then gave it to her husband who was with her. Somebody failed in leading, right? So the scripture never takes that away. It takes away, though, how we often misuse the role given to us. And so notice here that in all three of these directives to the men as masters, fathers, and finally husbands, Paul is unmistakably exposing a weakness that we guys, we guys often have. And it is addressing it. And the weakness is outbursts and overbearingness. How often do you get frustrated? Don't say anything, okay? No incrimination. But how often do you get so frustrated you just can't believe that she can't figure it out? It's as clear as day to you. And you explode. When was the time you, remember the time you hit the refrigerator? You were so stinking mad and it (laughs) snapped. (laughs) Wham! Okay, nobody else did that. I'm not telling you who did that. And I want you to realize, gentlemen... In most cases, men are physically bigger and more muscular and stronger than their wives. And when there's that overbearing outburst, your wife, most of the time, is terrified. I've sat with some of your wives. I know they're terrified. And so one of the things this is speaking to, you, Paul is coming to, is... We're not to be those kind of men. That's the way the the elemental spirits of the world want you to be, but you're not to be that kind of man. That's why he dresses the way he does. And so it's very explicit here when he says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh to them. We're We're to gently and graciously love our wives. Which takes us back up to verse 12 through 15. This is what it means to have that gentle, gracious attitude, to have compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, and then taking a cargo strap of love and strapping it down so that the peace of Christ can rule. Right? We're to be gentle and we're to gently and graciously love our lives. And it's in this gracious and gentle environment that you wives can then find it more fitting to do your part. Verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now notice that last statement. To submit fits the Lord as is fitting in the Lord, as is appropriate in the Lord, as as goes along with the Lord. Submitting fits the Lord because why? Because Jesus, who is equal to the Father in power and glory, what does Jesus do to the Father? He surrendered. He places His own authority under the Father's and He places His own self under the Father's leadership. Submission is not a dirty word. It's being godly. Every one of you here, hey listen, I remember Bob Dylan in the season... Everybody got to serve somebody. You got to serve somebody. Every one of us is submitting. If we're being biblical Christians, we're submitting to someone. Submission is not a dirty word. And so notice how Paul puts it. This actually fits the Lord Jesus in this way. The gospel emphasis is as is fitting to the Lord, as fits the shape of our Lord Jesus. Now, man, I need to come back to you for just a moment. Because I have to say this, and I cannot tell you how many men I've had to, to deal with who did this. The directive given here leaves no room for us to go rant and shout and demand and pound and say, Wife, submit to me. Do you notice the scripture doesn't say, Husbands, go around and boss your wives around telling tell them to submit to you. Do you know, does anybody see that? Everybody see that? There's no room for that, right? We're not to do that kind of stuff. And I'm going to tell you if, you, if you do that, it shows you failed. You have failed as a husband. The fact that we're told to love and not be harsh rightly shows that because of who Jesus is and what he has done then we become a new kind of husband. One that she wants to lead her and the family. So now I move back to sisters just briefly. In an age where the elemental spirits of the world are wooing you, wooing you to retaliate against the evil patriarchy, whatever the world that is. Paul is placing you, if you didn't notice it, I get the chance to tell you, Paul is placing you in a hugely elevated position. You are at the top of this whole list. And he puts you right up front in that elevated position. Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. You get to set the trend of the gospel in your homes. You need to think sometimes about Abigail. Abigail was actually being submissive to her husband. She just didn't obey him. Because she did what was best for him. Are you picking that up? And she was being submissive to David, but that didn't mean she obeyed David when he was doing wrong. But she was working in his best interest. And she is set apart in that chapter as really the God-sent heroine of that story. Very interesting. You get to set the tone for the gospel in your family, exhibiting our Lord Jesus in a very fitting way. And husbands, fathers, you get the opportunity to add your amen to that by the way you husband and father. And so, my friends, hopefully, as we have worked through this gospel family code, it is, I hope, it has made clear that the abusive misuses are just that. They are abusive misuses. And we have been given a better way. And it's a way that is saturated with Jesus and the gospel. And so, all of this household code, then, is part of how the gospel gift Jesus freely offered to us in the gospel brings us gospel liberty so we can do some gospel living and get on with some gospel living. Where even in our homes, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, under the, the authority of Jesus and in submission to Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. The gospel immediately impacts our homes so that we can become gospel families. But here then at our end... There is liable to be some grief and regret because we have missed the mark. Who here? Has, don't even ask. Don't even answer this. Who here has not missed the mark as a wife, as a husband, as a child, as a dad, employer, employee? Who has not missed the mark? We've all missed the mark. And as you go through that, there's liable to be some grief, some grief and some regret. And some changes may need to be made. The possibility is the fact that when you realize how you have misstepped and done wrong is then to hunker down in some kind of self-pity. But here's where the gospel comes in again. No room for self-pity. Why? Because the Father qualified you. The Father came in and He took you out from underneath the domain of darkness and He transferred you into the kingdom of His beloved Son where you have redemption and forgiveness of sins. No need for a pity party. It's my party and I'll cry if I want to. No room for a pity party. See how grief and regret missed the mark? Yeah, of course you did. But Jesus took away all of that record of debt that you owed. Took it away at the cross. And He has put you in as a new person. You're part of His new way of being human. New way, better way of being uh, wives and husbands and, and children and fathers, etc. He has set us on a new path. And so instead of the pity party, just get up. Lord, I messed up. Maybe you need to confess that to your wife or your husband. You might need to confess that to your children. And you children might need to confess that to your fathers. That you've messed up. That may need to be done. But then get up. And get on with the gospel. And so wives and husbands, children, fathers, employees and employers who are in Christ Jesus as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord our God, that you did not leave us to the stormy winds of our society. You gave us, you gave us you not only rescued us and brought us into the kingdom of your, of your beloved son. You not only drew us in and made us part of your family. You not only forgave us, but you also now have guide, guide us in how to be a gospel family. I pray for all of us. That we would all do everything. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks to you, O oh God our Father. In all of this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.